Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say, so, yeah, we like to get started. I talk to you, and you talk to me. Who are you talking to at this hour? Mr. Godley, you better start talking. Let's start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind is J-talking. Midnight, conversing until the light. All we need is information. Now we got ourselves communication. J. J Talking, WBZ. It's WBZ, you're J Talking. I'm host Bradley J. There's producer Mark Lavallo. And with us now, Ian Ballantyne. How do you do, sir? I'm doing fine. Are you okay? I'm very well. Yes, sir. Now, Ian is author of The Deadly Deep, The Definitive History of Submarine Warfare. Right out of the gate, you give some examples of how humans first used the, uh, being underwater for stealth to gain advantage. I thought that was interesting. Can you share some of those? Yeah, I think it was uh, mainly people who, who wanted to have a means to equalize uh, an imbalance of forces. So they would be people who were against uh, more powerful navies or more powerful people. So they thought what we'll do is we'll go under the sea in a small submarine and uh, try and sink the big guys because uh, that was the only way they thought they could make it fair. Well, you have examples, though, of way before that, in even Egyptian times, of how being underwater was yeah. used to man's advantage. Yeah, I mean, it goes way back to ancient times when, obviously, started off with people who were divers who would go under the sea uh, to put holes in uh, ancient vessels, let's say uh, the Greeks versus the Persians. And then that came forward to somebody thinking, what if we went down in a diving bell to see if we could get into a, a harbour and... Uh, take away the, the footings of, uh, of uh, wharfs and things like that and migrated to people in, uh, let's say, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. He was one guy who thought that he could come up with an underwater craft that would help the Venetians uh, sink any Turkish attacking force. So people were always coming up with ideas, but it, it took a, a very brave person to actually try and go under the water in, in, in a vessel. Well, actually, I was talking about... people was a Dutchman. Actually, I was talking about when the yeah. Egyptians would go underwater with a reed and sneak up on ducks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was duck hunters. Yeah, they, they were keen on sneaking up on ducks, so you could say it started there. Uh, okay. Trying to put something on their, their dinner table. So, let's talk about some people. Uh, George, uh, uh, Garrett. Jo Georg yeah. Garrett. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He was a he was a, a man of uh, a man of God, a, a reverend in England who uh, invented a steam-powered submarine that uh, built that in Liverpool, and uh, he decided he would take it from Liverpool down to Portsmouth in the south of England to show off to the Royal Navy. But unfortunately, it sank on the way. But he did come up with other other vessels for the Turks and the Russians, 
and uh, they were reasonably effective, but um, he had a few mishaps. So what do you think is a good place to start with this? Would it be uh, the very first time a submarine is used to successfully sink a, a surface vessel, or maybe the first attempts, or the first failures? Where do you think it's best to begin? I think that, um, the main thing that they were all aiming at was to come up with a perfect balance between uh, keeping the crew alive, propulsion, which uh, had to not kill them as well, and also having a weapon they could stick on it that would sink a vessel. So you'd have to look at the uh, the Hunley, which was a Confederate States um, vessel that was um, man-powered. They used hand cranks to power the Hunley in the 1860s, and the Hunley actually sank a, a, a Union Navy steam sloop called the Housatonic, at Charleston in 1864, so that was the first ever sinking, but the, the unfortunate thing was they used a thing called a spar torpedo, which was the explosives on the end of a long pole, and that sank the Hunley as well, which was unfortunate for the crew. How about some early designs that did not work? Early designs that didn't work? Well, uh, there were quite a few of those. There was the, uh, during the Civil War, the American Civil War on the Union side, there was the, um, the alligator, which was invented by a, a French a Frenchman called Brutus de Villoir, who went to America as a self-proclaimed genius and approached President Lincoln with this thing that looked like a massive, um, actually looked like a massive alligator with paddles. And the idea was that it would go and sink uh, the enemy's vessels, but it never quite worked. It was more of a danger to its own crew, coming to grief almost a couple of times. And then there would be other people. A Frenchman uh, invented a coffin-shaped submarine and unfortunately on the first dive he got stuck in the mud so he, he ended up being actually his coffin so those are just two early ones that didn't work but it took a while before they got something that was practical now jules verne Twenty Thousand leagues was a pretty early story did that have any effect on submarines and and did that spur submarine development or was that was that just unrelated I think Jules Verne, um, that novel came out shortly after the American Civil War, and I think he had picked up on the many different uh, attempts at submersibles, uh, as early submarines were called, and, and distilled that into his Nautilus and uh, used that in the fictional setting of that novel with Captain Nemo. And I think it did plant in the minds of people that uh, a submarine could be a terror weapon and could be quite formidable just by being under the water and uh, going around the world. And, of course, his Nautilus was actually a precursor to the nuclear-powered Nautilus that came later. In that it, it didn't need air to exhale fumes and take in air. Uh, sorry, take in new oxygen to help charge batteries. It was um, powered by mysterious electrical means. So that was actually um, a very uh, advanced depiction of what would ultimately be the nuclear submarine. So we've spoken about uh, a use of a submarine in the Civil War, and then, of course, in World War One. But talk about submarine development between the Civil War and World War One, which is a long time—fifty years or so, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was uh, fueled as ever, I think, uh, in those days by the desire of people to to get back at the British. To be honest, because the Royal Navy was the, the biggest uh, navy in the world and people like the Fenians in Ireland and uh, working with a, a guy called John Philip Holland who emigrated to Pennsylvania wanted to create small submarines that would attack the Royal Navy. The French were looking to come up with all sorts of designs that again would put them on a par uh, with the Royal Navy. But in fact, it was the US Navy which was not by that time overly hostile towards the British and quite friendly that put into service the first what we call Holland-class submarine 
which became um, the first practical vessel that put together diesel engine uh, battery power and had a working self-propelled torpedo. So there were, there, were, there were lots of attempts and various things that used all sorts of weird and wonderful propulsion. But it was only 1901 with John Philip Holland and the U.S. Navy that you could say that the first proper submarine as we'd see it today actually entered the water. Now let's continue. We got up to about, uh, well, we haven't gotten into the First World War yet, but I wanted to kind of change it up here a little bit and ask about the evolution of the torpedoes themselves. If you can give me the, I mean, the yeah. first one was a like a bomb on a stick and, and give me the complete evolution yeah, of yeah, torpedoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it went back before that. There's a, another American, I think Americans have been very important in development of submarines and their weapons. Um, was a guy called uh, Robert Fulton who went to England and uh, came up with a thing he called a torpedo, which was what we would call a sea mine. And uh, it was that explosive, um, floating explosive device was taken by a British uh, engineer working for the Austrians uh, called Robert Whitehead, who, who, who helped the Austrians uh, develop their, what they called a locomotive torpedo, which was a powered torpedo. So the first torpedoes were actually around in the late sort of 1870s, 1880s. And it was that weapon, rather than Robert Fulton's torpedo, that actually became known as what we would call the torpedo. So that was a very important invention, obviously. So basically you take a sea mine and stick a propellant or a propulsion unit on the end of it, right? Yeah, yeah, and then, and then you put some devices in it that will help it keep depth and give it speed and uh, steam, perhaps, initially, but then it, eventually um, electrical power as well. And you, you launch it out of a tube, uh, whether it's on a, an early destroyer or one of the new, the new fangled uh, submarines, and hope that it hits a uh, point, point the vessel at a battleship or some other vessel and fire that torpedo and see whether or not it sinks it. Can you give a... a a pretty detailed evolution of the torpedo. There's the first propelled sea mine, and then I guess different things like fuel has to fuel evolves, and that changes things, and and navigation and all that. Can you give like I don't know three, four, five, six uh, spots on the evolution of the torpedo? I'll see what I can do. Um, the um, well. We, we would, of course, have to talk with, um, if you look at the highlights, we'd have to talk about Robert Fulton, who used one of his torpedoes to blow up a, um, a vessel off the coast of Kent in England um, and uh, showed that you could blow apart another vessel. So that was in 1801, because he wanted to give that to, to Nelson to destroy the Franco-Spanish fleet, which he eventually did at Trafalgar without torpedoes. But Fulton showed that you could use that kind of explosive to shatter a vessel. And then people tinkered with uh, various mines and other things during the um, during the American Civil War in the 1860s. But their their spar torpedo, as they called it, which was a mine stuck on the end of a pole, which was put on the Hundley, uh, had this inherent flaw in that you needed to be 20 feet, 30 feet in contact with the target vessel, and of course the explosion could, as it did with Hundley, sink your own vessel, so that wasn't a very good idea. So you had your Austrians in the Adriatic thinking, why don't we put a motor into this thing, we'll try some steam and we'll, we'll put, it, put it into this thing, give it some fins on the back and a propeller and we'll fire it. And then Robert Whitehead, this genius engineer who worked, uh, came down to Austria to work with them, said, why don't you have a, um, so 
some sort of gyroscope in there, and so you can fix the direction and uh, send it off towards the enemy at a certain depth and hit them below the waterline. And thereafter, various other people came up with torpedoes, but whiteheads, because they were known as whiteheads in the early days, that kind of torpedo, the self-propelled torpedo, was called the whitehead, after Robert Whitehead. And so uh, every Navy got into buying some whiteheads. And they were first used properly in action to sink vessels in actually uh, Latin America, where various uh, states like Chile and Argentina and uh, others ha had wars with themselves. And I think the first battleship uh, was sunk uh, in one of those wars by a torpedo. So that was the first time that happened. And then uh, World War I comes along, and by then they're a little bit more sophisticated. So you have not just, um, not just steam propulsion, but they're looking into electric, electric propulsion too, which, of course, is quieter. So you don't hear the torpedo so much. You don't see the bubbles as it goes under the, under the uh, under the sea. But that's the World War Two development, really. I suppose the electric torpedo, and in World War Two, that's when homing torpedoes come in that home in on the noise of an enemy vessel and blow it up by exploding under the stern or or, or create a gas bubble under the vessel and not actually contacting it and uh, break the back of the enemy ship. So by World War Two, you could say that the the sophisticated torpedoes we know it today was um, was invented. Now, what about the capabilities of t torpedoes today? What are the new the new functions that they have? Uh, the torpedo today is um, is uh, almost you could call it a drone. In uh, if you look at a, a modern U.S. Navy or Royal Navy or Russian or, or any leading navy's uh, torpedo, they uh, for a start they can be wire guided, which means they can go over vast distance at vast speeds that the early inventors would never have imagined. And uh, once they're near a target, they can switch from the mother submarine's guidance system, uh, the sonar that's guiding the torpedo to the target. And often modern submarines will fire two at a time, with one going in for the target and another one still being guided by this wire from the mother submarine, loitering to see what happens. But once the uh, torpedo gets near to the uh, actual target, the modern torpedo, then it breaks free of the wire and its own homing sonar and own electronic brain takes over, and so it will do manoeuvres and then come in and hit the target. And uh, the best way of killing a surface vessel is that gas bubble underneath the centre of the enemy vessel, which basically breaks it in two. So they are, you could say they're almost like drones themselves now because they can think once they get close to the kill zone. So the wire that guides, can that also provide power? Uh, no, it, it doesn't provide power, but it, it does allow the controller sitting in the uh, hunter-killer submarine or attack boat uh, to uh, to tweak the uh, the course of the uh, of the torpedo and also if they fired two to keep the other one ready to go in is uh, are the torpedoes of today still electrically powered the same way are they battery powered yeah battery powered they're very very powerful batteries and uh, the russians do have so they say plans for nuclear powered torpedoes uh, they have one massive new invention uh, which they say will help them revolutionize warfare, which is uh, almost as big as a mini-submarine that has a nuclear reactor, according to them, which they could fire over hundreds of miles, probably from the other side of an ocean, to actually blow up inside a harbor uh, and uh, basically cause 
uh, devastation uh, wow. along the waterfront and knock out an enemy's trade. Yeah, uh, whether or not that'll work, whether or not that comes true uh, and actually is perfected is another matter. They they claim to be working on this quite uh, terrifying nuclear powered torpedo at the moment. Do they still use propellers? Because propellers are kind of loud. I would think maybe some sort of water jet propulsion would be quieter. Yeah, yeah. Water jet propulsion is is um, something that uh, both uh, submarines and torpedoes aspire to. I mean, I'm I'm not the world's greatest technician on torpedoes. I mean, I've been aboard a submarine and slept next to one uh, on a, on a brief voyage. Uh, but uh, they normally keep them covered up. Propellers are still very secret. But torpedoes do use propellers. Uh, submarines use propulsors and propellers. So the, the, the technology is getting there. It's getting close to the Hunt for Red October idea of the uh, water jet, pump jet, silent propulsion. All right, before we take another break, you're, you're extremely into submarines. How did this take place? I mean, you, you, you're in Plymouth, for example. How did that happen? Yeah. Um, I, know, I know quite a few British submariners. I know quite a few submarine captains and also ratings, what we call ratings. And uh, uh, I know quite a few. And I, I did do a three-day three, three day trip in uh, HS Triumph, uh, Trafalgar-class submarine, from here to Scotland. And also I've been aboard the same submarine on uh, weapons trials off the coast of Scotland. And I visited lots of submarines alongside. And I just thought they were fascinating uh, beasts and uh, you know with only one third of what they are above the water so you don't really see all of them they're, they're massive really and i also got interested in the psychology and the personality of submariners which is quite individual is it cramped down there like it used to be i mean they were famous for being cramped but now they're much bigger is it, is it nicer than it used to be uh, yeah, I would say that um, a nuclear-powered attack submarine is, uh, compared to the submarines of, of, of old, even World War II, is a lot bigger, a lot more comfortable, obviously. Uh, the diesel-electric submarines that are still around today are smaller, and they are cramped. I've been aboard one of those, and they are tiny. So it takes a special person to cope with the lack of space. And I learned through my three, three nights, uh, four days, whatever it was, aboard HMS Triumph, that if you're not a part of the crew with a job to do or you're not in your bunk out of the way then you're just a spare part and you're in the way because even in a nuclear powered submarine there's not an overabundance of space not in the attack submarines uh, the, obviously the nuclear missile submarines are somewhat bigger uh, but they have a different job altogether and more stately so uh, but certainly in, in, even in a hunter killer or attack submarine of today it's not um, not vast inside it's a, it's a different kind of life are there special drills or, or precautions you have to take in nuclear submarines against radiation? Yes, there are. Uh, the, the atmosphere is very carefully controlled. You can't uh, wear uh, antiperspirant. You can't smoke. Obviously, I mean, the big thing people are afraid of and worried about in any submarine is fire when you're under the sea. And when I was aboard Triumph, they were constantly rehearsing fire drills. And they'll be the same in every Navy around the world to, to fight fires so that they don't have to expose themselves by surfacing and, and uh, obviously opening the hatch uh, or hatches to let, let all the fumes out and, and get killed by the fumes and also lose the submarine under the sea. So fire is, is a main preoccupation. And, of course, the reactor at the back, especially protected and only qualified and important people can go beyond the, the big door that um, keeps everybody protected from uh, radiation, among other things. So there's lots of precautions. And everybody wears um, a special thing, a meter, uh, on them 
uh, to make sure that they're not picking up any kind of uh, dose of radiation. So everybody has that. I have a question about a place that I visited. It's all about submarines. And I bet you know about it. And maybe you could add something to my experience. I went to Estonia and off an hour away from Tallinn is Paldiski. Does that ring a bell with you, In It's a town that was taken over and made into a nuclear submarine center, training center. And a submarine guy like you probably knows about that, right? Uh, I do, yeah. It was a training center for the uh, Baltic fleet. And uh, I've been to Latvia next door, but I'm afraid I didn't make it to Paldiski. Um, Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And uh, the Russians, obviously, during the Cold War, had massive submarine forces. So it doesn't surprise me that you... uh, you, you found some interesting submarine artifacts there. Well, they had I've also been to Murmansk as well. Oh, yeah. wow. Is that still in operation? Yeah. Murmansk? Yeah, yeah, that's the Northern Fleet. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the Northern Fleet. That's the um, headquarters of the uh, what used to be called the Red Banner Northern Fleet in Soviet era, but it's now um, just the Northern Fleet. And I went there aboard an anti-submarine warship called HS London. And uh, it, uh, we went down the Pollyano in that past the Russian... Navy as it then was, rusting and uh, fairly inactive, but is now more active, and there's a lot more Russian submarines out there today than there have been for a long time. Yeah, interesting place. And how was it that they allowed you to go there? Because, well, it must be kind of secret. Yeah, yeah. I I was a newspaper journalist, and uh, in those days, um, access and time aboard warships at the end of the Cold War was um, uh, actually quite a bit easier than it is today, certainly with the Royal Navy. And uh, so I was invited to cover this historic visit that would take us up around the north of um, Norway and into Murmansk and Archangel to meet the Russians at sea and celebrate the end of the Cold War. And it was at the time of what they call the Hardliners' Coup in August 1991 when they tried to take Russia back to Soviet days. And uh, we were shadowed by a Russian submarine. Uh, We met Russian warships and aircraft, and we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. But it turned out they were friendly. And then we had an exercise after visiting Murmansk where a Russian submarine fired a practice torpedo at the warship I was in, HMS London. And fortunately, HMS London was able to evade the practice torpedo, which could have still caused a hole. So it was quite an exciting visit. So how did they evade it? (laughs) What did they do to evade it? Uh, well, basically, what what happened was that during this, this exercise with the Russians, I don't think anybody realised that this um, 
this practice torpedo would actually be fired um, at, at us. So there was a, what they call a Royal Fleet Auxiliary Tanker, an oiler with HMS London and uh, London being a frigate. And they were uh, both in formation. And suddenly they saw this, um, this red, uh, orange-nosed uh, practice torpedo, which was near the surface of the sea, because that's how it worked, being guided by wire. We were talking about wires earlier. Being wire-guided by some Russian submariners in a, in, in a submarine that we, we couldn't see but knew was there on sonar. So this, uh, this orange thing starts coming towards the, um, the British uh, formation, playing uh, the escort vessels in a reenactment of a sort of World War II convoy. And so, so the, uh, the oiler and the frigate thought they'd better take evasive action, so physically avoided it. And I guess the Russians uh, aboard their submarine saw he was getting a, a hit round the head for nearly uh, putting the uh, the Cold War back on. So it was quite a, an amusing incident, you might say, at the time, because you could imagine the Russian submariner thinking, at last, you know, I've got one of these NATO warships in my sights. But uh, fortunately, there were no holes caused. I'm surprised that those those vessels could avoid a wire-guided torpedo. Yeah, well, it was probably set not at its maximum speed, and um, we have to think that the Russians, although they were trying to scare us, were uh, possibly not actually trying to hit us. But it was a practice torpedo. That's somewhat different from a, an actual torpedo in that it doesn't have uh, a warhead in it that will blow you up, and I think it's designed to let you see what they call the track as it comes towards you. So uh, hence, I think there was a, a fairly good chance of avoiding it but it was still something that was uh, surprising to the british who didn't know that that was actually going to happen did you actually see it in the water coming at you uh i think we, we saw it flash by that's all you could say i mean these things happen so quickly in some ways you're not even aware where it's happening until there's a sudden move and you say to somebody what the heck's going on and then you see this kind of orange thing flashing by and uh, that's it you know seconds that's all it takes okay so we really didn't talk about World War I yet. Um, I guess I don't need to sp specifically talk about that conflict. Can you, let's jump ahead. Can you tell me the difference between a U-boat and a submarine? Is, is there a difference, and what is the difference? They are the same. I mean, undersea boat is the German for undersea oh, okay. vessel, undersea boat. Yeah, so, I mean, U-boat, um, in, in the book, you know, when I talk about U-boat, then I'm just meaning German submarine. Okay. Uh, Italians also operated what, what they call U-boats, but really it's the Axis side in World War Two. Okay, it just seemed like it... And World War One, they had U-boats. It seemed like U-boats had more of a deck to me, so they were more boat-like, but that probably um, not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're the same, but you're right. They, they, the casing of, uh, of U-boats in World War Two and American submarines in World War Two was flatter, more like a... A sur not like a surface vessel, but on the, on the surface would give them better what you call sea keeping. Um, uh, so yeah, they did compared to British submarines, for example, they did look like that, um, and uh, that was for a reason. In that the Germans decided during World War Two, certainly initially, uh, they would use their submarines on the surface at night in, in night attacks on um, Allied convoys. So. Uh, World War II submarines were submersibles that operated on the surface uh, for as long as they could before they had to dive to avoid attack or to attack other people. We talked about the evolution of torpedoes. Can we do the same sort of thing with anti-submarine measures and the evolution of those? Yeah. Um, the uh, early days of uh, anti-submarine warfare obviously go back to the first proper 
conflict involving submarines, which was World War One, and uh, initially this would be the Royal Navy versus the the Germans, and the major problem then was they had no uh, means of hitting a submarine and destroying it unless it was on the surface, and also finding it. They didn't have sonar or anything like that. So there are all sorts of crazy things used to try and find submarines, like uh, the employment of mystics, that is, people that, that could tell where a submarine was just by guessing uh, or saying they had superpowers. They, they tried to train sailors to catch periscopes and smash the lenses, and even seagulls to go and defecate on uh, submarines. I don't want to be too rude this time in the morning, but uh, there were all sorts of crazy things tried. But also, also, in addition to that, there were charges on the ends of wires and guns were used to try and hit submarines. So that was World War I. Uh, and then 1917, in the latter part of World War I, the depth charge, which is like a big barrel full of explosives with a hydrostatic fuse that uh, sets them off at certain depths, they became powerful. So that was the first real effective weapon against a submarine, apart from another submarine which could sneak up on a surface submarine and torpedo it. So the main, the main means of attacking killing submarines was a submarine or a depth charge really in World War One, and the aircraft, early aircraft were used for spotting them. So by World War Two, aircraft had become much more effective and could carry weapons um, and there was um, sonar had been invented by then uh, to detect submarines under the sea uh, it had been around in World War One, but was not very effective at all in fact was virtually useless uh, but in World War II you had sonar to find a submerged submarine, you had aircraft with bombs and depth charges and so the whole panoply of uh, weaponry uh, built up and then it was a race between submarines being able to uh, avoid the enemy by diving and hiding and being quiet and uh, the British and the Americans against the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians trying to perfect new means of detecting uh, submarines under the sea and more effective weapons such as depth bombs which were a development of uh, depth charges and uh, and that's how it had evolved by the end of World War, War Two. Are there any, well were there any and maybe are there any yet Electronic countermeasures like there are for aircraft to confuse guidance systems that are trying to get you? Yeah, there are, there are countermeasures. The, uh, the, the German U-boat force had countermeasures in World War, World War II, in fact. Uh, that, but that's mainly for sonar. They would fire, noise, they would fire out um, noise-generating things into the sea, like capsules that um, fizzed in the water. And they would, um, they would um, also uh, use other things to try and uh, confuse uh, submarines uh, and uh, one old trick which is true was uh, pretending a submarine had been sunk by firing uh, had a special gun which could fire stuff out of the submarine such as old shoes and bits of clothes and wood to try and con uh, the hunting uh, escort vessels that the submarine had been sunk and today um, I think it's still down to sonar and um, submarine countermeasures that will confuse a submarine uh, uh, into thinking that it's got the right target when in fact the target's somewhere else. It's all pretty secret stuff, but they, there are uh, what you would call uh, devices that can be used to distract or confuse or seduce a torpedo away. I think that's what they call them. That's how they define it. And that's the same thing with surface warships and uh, anti-shipping missiles. I heard something very vaguely about an ability or an attempt to get the ability to capture another submarine's 
maybe it's its sonar signature, and and use that somehow and project that somehow to either protect you or make the that sub's torpedo attack itself, or get one of your enemy to attack the other by faking sonar signatures. Can you talk about that? It could be. I could be. I, I'm afraid I don't know too much about that one. I mean, I've, I've, I know about um, the process of um, trailing submarines, as they call it, um, and uh, recording their sound signatures. But I'm afraid you've got me on that one. I don't. I'm not familiar with that one. So but I, should, I should think somebody somewhere is working on it. You know. And why do they trail another submarine and steal its signature? This uh, this is really a Cold War uh, specialty. Uh, that's to record the individual uh, propeller noise or any other noise aspect of an enemy submarine or a surface ship. And then uh, you would bank that tape, that recording, in um, a database or in a, a sound file that you would carry with you in, in a submarine during the Cold War. Uh, it would be a tape for the majority of the Cold War, in fact, all of the Cold War, or digital these days. And so when you're, let's say, you're on um, on the trail of a vessel in the North Atlantic and you pick up a noise, you then compare it with whatever you've got in your your sound bank, and that will tell you exactly what submarine that is by type and possibly even by name. And the whole idea is to know uh, via its different idiosyncrasies. And the Russians, for example, during the Cold War, did it to British and American submarines, um, was to think, well, what, what is it that makes that individual? There's a knocking sound there, or there's a defect in the prop. There's a certain thing going on with that vessel. And we know from our other intelligence sources that, let's say, that vessel had a had an accident that uh, made it um, slightly um, defective in some of its machinery or I'm just citing an example so they then can identify exactly the type or even the the actual submarine and that enables you to know the opponent you're up against right. and who you're trying to sink and, wh- and what they might do to you of course how many subs well, no I'm backing up how long can a modern sub stay down stay submerged nuclear pad, then uh, a modern submarine can stay down for as long as the crew's sanity lasts and as long as the food lasts, because uh, it's got nuclear power, which is unlimited electrical power to run life support systems and weapon systems and sensors. If you're talking a modern diesel submarine, which has a thing called closed cycle propulsion that recirculates the fuel, the conventional fuel, whatever it is, uh, without get, having to vent fumes on the surface and recharge batteries, then you're probably talking three or four weeks maximum. And that's pretty good for a a conventional submarine. It's pretty impressive. And the modern German Navy has U-boats that have been proven to do that. Uh, So it varies. But if you want to stay down a long time, you want to be aboard a nuclear-powered submarine. Can you give me an idea of how many subs are out there? Let's say nuclear-powered subs carrying nuclear warheads. How many out there? Very interesting question. I mean, if you're on about a daily basis, um, I'll just very quickly do a calculation in my head, and this will only be very rough. Uh, if you're talking nuclear missile, you said nuclear missile submarines, was that? Yes. Yeah, okay, let me think. Uh, I would say nuclear missile submarines is maybe seven, eight, half a dozen at sea, but obviously there'll be others preparing to go um, at any one time. And you're talking about America... Uh, USA, uh, the UK, France, um, Russia, China now, and and India is preparing also to send to sea 
uh, nuclear missile submarines, and, and that is the still very exclusive club that runs those massive beasts um, with Trident for the UK and the USA uh, aboard those missiles, the Trident D5 missile. Um, so and that's the Russians, not I would say, are very many. Uh, that's uh, still. like one apiece. That's like one for no. each country, right? Well, yeah, I mean, as I say, each country will have, I mean, I'm not uh, privy to the secret plans of, of the navies, but, for example, the, uh, the Royal Navy has one out there all the time, and I'm sure the U.S. Navy has one uh, and two out there, and one in the Pacific maybe area and one somewhere out there in the Atlantic, who knows, uh, at any one time, maybe more. So, And then the French have one at sea all the time. And the Chinese, I think, are getting one to see all the time. The Russians, one, maybe two. So um depends on what's available. Um, the Russians, are, at some stages, were finding it very difficult to do. The Chinese, for many years, didn't really have a nuclear missile submarine at sea, and the Indians are just starting. But, but any one of those submarines carries enough explosive power to, I would say, end the world, really. So you don't need a lot of them to do um, terrible damage, and you hope the day never comes. And that's the whole point of uh, nuclear deterrent submarines, is to make sure that nobody ever attacks anybody in a major way conventionally. And uh, um, I think the day you have to use one is the day that it's... Uh, I don't want to be too gloomy here, but it's the end of the story. So they're, they're pretty powerful machines. They're the most powerful uh, weapons uh, that you never want to use that have ever been invented. Can, do you have an idea of how many missiles is on like a Trident and what, what kind of a nuclear power each right. one of those uh, has? Uh, exact explosive power. I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I would say, you know, for example, the, the Royal Navy now probably carries 12 uh, Trident missile submarines. The U.S. Navy could carry more than that in the Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines. And the Russians similar. So you're talking about per submarine. You're talking anywhere between 12 and 16, or even up to 24, uh, depending on on the boat. Um, and um, each one of those will have a, a, a multiple uh, warhead tip, with not just one um, explosive warhead on the top, but actually it's like a casing. And once it gets high enough in its trajectory. Uh, above the target, um, it will will then split apart, and all these multiple maneuverable warheads will come out and will try and dodge any uh, anti missile, uh, sorry, anti ballistic missile missiles that the enemy has, and hit the target. So you're talking multiple warheads on each missile. So that's why you don't need many of these vessels at sea to actually cause world-ending destruction. So, Are each of those um, uh, multiple, multiple, multiple talking, warheads on a MIRV, are they targeted? Yeah. Do they have a different target or the same target? I think they will be targeted. You know, they're, they're very sophisticated okay. um, to hit particular targets. And it, these days, um, you know, you could well be sitting in a city now, and so could I, that is on the target list of, let's say, the Russian ballistic missile submarine that's on, on duty right now. Uh, there was a time uh, after the Cold War when uh, missiles were detargeted, and so they didn't uh, have specific targets. Uh, that was certainly the case with the Royal Navy in, in my, my country, um, and uh, but I'm not so sure that would be the case anymore. Uh, but you'd have to ask governments about that. That's something okay. that's highly secret. In about a minute, and, uh, yeah. In about a minute, is there a, is there a doomsday program such that? say Russia gets totally destroyed and unable to wage any sort of war, that automatically down the road, that, that, that a 
nuclear submarine is set up to shoot off all its missiles in the event that the host country is destroyed as a doomsday safety device. Yeah, you're thinking almost like um, Dr. Strangelove. Um, I don't know. I, d- I doubt it. I mean, I, d- I mean, there the, the may be... Every submarine will have orders on board that they open when they're given the orders. I don't think they could ever have something that's just on a hair trigger because I think you need to have a command and control from ashore. So there has to be somebody like the president or and the prime minister or in Russia the president who, who has to give that authorization to send the codes. I think to have uh, just some sort of auto-robotic uh, response to anything would be... Uh, would be absolutely catastrophic, and I don't know. I don't know if anybody these days uh, still believes that there's any viability in, in reality, in in nuclear war at all. I don't think you can survive in nuclear war. I don't think there's any way, in my opinion, to have a totally limited nuclear war. There are people who think you can with lower yield warheads, and you can use them. But from my my point of view, I, I think you're actually going to end up escalating everything. So I. I, I Personally, I would say that it's probably uh, dangerous and highly unlikely they've got something on a hair trigger, but obviously every submarine captain has orders in a safe aboard the vessel that they must open and then read from, from the, very, the very top person saying, yeah. in the event of nuclear war, fire all missiles or don't fire any. Right. Well, that's interesting. I'd love to read that. Ian Ballantyne, I really appreciate your time. Uh, author of The Deadly Deep. The Definitive History of Submarine Warfare. And there's a whole lot more in it than we covered. It's a big book. A lot of you would love it. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.